Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Dr. Derwin Gray, the author of How to Heal Our Racial Divide. Derwin, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Josh. It's an honor to, to be with you and to connect with your audience. Yeah, I'm really excited for this for this conversation. Uh, now, just to start, um, can you give me an overview of what your book is about? Yeah, you, you know, um, what? so before I give you an interview of what the book is about, just kind of some background on me, because the book really fleshes out kind of my story and how I got to um, kind of do what I'm doing. So basically, uh, grew up in San Antonio, Texas, didn't grow up in the church. Um, parents were teenagers when they had me. Grandparents primarily raised me. Um Football was very important to me. I worked hard, got a football scholarship. So I end up at Brigham Young University, which uh, is pretty much an all-white Mormon school. So I, I leave a multi-ethnic context in San Antonio, Texas, go to BYU, predominantly all-white school, Mormon school, meet a non-Mormon girl named Vicki from Montana. As a freshman, we end up getting engaged, getting married in college. I end up having a great college uh, career. She was awesome as well. Uh, in track and field. I get drafted to the NFL. And so I'm with the Indianapolis Colts from 1993 to 1997. And during that time is when God began to draw me unto himself. I had a teammate named Steve Grant. His nickname was the Naked Preacher because literally every day after practice, he would take a shower, dry off, wrap his towel around his waist and ask my teammates, do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm like, bro, do you know you're half naked? I mean, it was just like the strangest thing. But anyway, over a five-year period, um, I began to listen to what he was saying, and the Lord really began to move on my heart, and I got to the place to where uh, if football was as good as life got, then I was in trouble. Um, I knew I needed forgiveness. I live with uh, bitterness and unforgiveness. And so on August 2nd, 1997 is when I came to faith. My wife came to faith like six months before me. So that was 1997. 1998, I signed a free agent contract with the Carolina Panthers and we moved to Charlotte. And so when we moved to Charlotte, I played in three games before I hurt my knee. So going into the 1999 season, my wife and I just decided, you know, football's done. It's time to move on to the next thing. We didn't really know what the next thing was, but God did. And I think if he would have revealed everything to us, uh, we would have ran the other way because there's no way we could have handled what he was calling us to. So long story really short is this, is my wife and I loved Jesus because he loved us. We started a ministry called One Heart at a Time Ministries, where I would travel around and speak. My wife would arrange uh, the uh, speaking engagements. And then in about in 2004, both of us were frustrated because we thought to ourselves, why is the nightclub more ethnically diverse than Jesus's club, the church? And then that began this process of us really studying the scriptures and coming to this beautiful reality that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He's the savior of the world, but the Jewish Messiah died. So Jews and Gentiles could enter the family of God. So let me put it to you this way. 
the blood of Jesus not only forgives us of our sins, but gives us a family of brothers and sisters with different colored skins. And through the Holy Spirit's power, as we learn to love each other, we display to the world God's glory. And once that grabbed a hold of our hearts, that's when we planted Transformation Church, February 7th, 2010. We're an intentionally multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. And so out of all those years of experience, I wrote how to heal our racial divide. And basically what I've done is I want to show people that the answer to the question is Jesus. The solution to the problem is Jesus. And when I say the name of Jesus, I mean the outworking of what he came to accomplish. So in how to heal our racial divide is I give people the theology, and then I give people practices, and then I share various stories of how people can actually become the change that they want to see. This is not just a book of saying, um, here's what to do. It's also a book that says, here's how to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really struck me about the book was how biblically founded it was, not that not that other books uh, that have been on this topic that have discussed, you know, anti-racism and racial reconciliation haven't been. Um, but you really get to the heart of the matter when you point out that the main challenge of the early church was also navigating racial division. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you can't even understand the New Testament if we miss that reality. And I want to thank you for saying it because I am a pastor and a theologian. So um, I believe the answer is biblical. I believe the answer is gospel. And what I'm trying to do is get people to return to the scripture and actually learn to live it out by faith. But when you look at the early church, for example, let's start with Jesus. So when Jesus goes to Samaria, that's a statement to break down racial division and create unity. When Jesus tells a story about the good Samaritan, it's the same thing. When Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews on one side of the Sea of Galilee and 4,000 on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, one side was Jews, the other side was Gentiles. That's a portrait into the future of Abraham's banquet. And then when you look at the Apostle Paul, every one of his letters was written to show how the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down ethnic walls of sin and division to create the new people of God. And I think that deliberately Satan has blinded the church's eyes to that reality. And so it's almost like we've created a gospel that says, yeah, God can forgive your sins, but you can dislike your brothers and sisters. No. First John 4, 20 says, how can you say you love God whom you've never seen? And say you love your brother and sister who you've seen. That to love God means to love our neighbors, our brothers and sisters. And so what I wanted people to see is that the gospel, the Bible is the answer. When people read this book, How to Heal Our, our Racial Divide, they will not see scripture the same and they will be the better for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the things, I mean, if you can just take me through um, just a little more in depth in Jesus. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking specifically of John chapter four in that yeah. interaction with the Samaritan woman. Uh, this is huge. 
because Jesus is a Jewish rabbi and even go through Samaria was itself a major um, flaunting of the religious rules of the time. So there's, there's this division and Jesus is working to, to bring that together. Um, we, we might look at that and we say, well, yeah, that, but that was, that was 2000 years in the past. Context was different. Culture was different. Uh, how, how is that relevant to the situations that we find ourselves in today? Yeah, you know, the one thing that human beings have been able to do very well is to divide based on color, based on culture. We have been experts at doing that. And so the same principles that Jesus used to break down the barrier between Jews and Samaritans, he can do so today. And even if we just take a look, right, let's just take a look around the world. Like, so Apartheid in South Africa was based on race. When we think about um, Bosnia and Croatia, that's an ethnic feud. When we think about Jim Crow and slavery in America, that's on ethnic ethnicity. So this isn't a problem that is simply an American problem. This is a human problem. And so um, Jesus is the answer to that human problem, but we have to learn how to work out the gospel with fear and trembling. So case in point, right? A lot of times we don't understand how we allow culture to affect how we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you an example. Um, a gentleman was asking me because I'm a former NFL player and this was years ago. He said, well, I was really offended when NFL players took a knee to protest the flag. What did you think? I said, well, let me respectfully correct one thing. NFL players did not protest the American flag. They were protesting injustice in America and they wanted what the flag represented to be a reality of liberty and justice for all. They were not protesting the flag. And then he, then he went on to say, well, my great-grandfather fought in World War II, and that's disrespectful to him. And I said, well, I'm grateful your grandfather fought in World War II. Thank you so much. I said, but don't forget 1.2 million Black GIs fought in World War II in Nazi racist Germany only to come back home to America and have racist as well and colored only water fountains and hotels and restaurants they couldn't enter and Jim Crow and segregation and 1.2 million of them did not receive um, aid from the government to be able to build homes in the suburbs which created so much white wealth. And so love says, I'm not only gonna look at this from my perspective, I'm gonna look at it from the perspective of Others, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. And so what I'm trying to do in how to heal our racial divide is to us, take us deeper into the work of Christ, deeper into the discipleship, deeper into love. When we use the word love, a lot of times we don't really understand what we mean. Agape in the Greek and hisset in the Hebrew is a never giving up, sacrificial suffering type of a love. And in order to heal our racial divide, that's the kind of love that is needed, but that's the kind of love we were created for. Mm -hmm. 
there is I, I love that you're you're pinpointing Jesus as the answer. The the criticism that I often hear whenever that's just thrown out there is like, well, well of course, it's kind of a general answer. Jesus is the answer to everything. Um, is that so much of the church at various points in history, the past and the present, and I'm sure going on to the future, uh, we haven't been on the right side of racial reconciliation. You know, it was uh, in, in the 1800s, it was elements of the church that found, you know, biblical justification for slavery. It was professed Christians that enacted those Jim Crow laws. It's uh, Christians today that just kind of say, well, we've solved the race problem. We had a black president. Uh, we can, we've, we've moved on from all that. Uh, why, why do you think, despite this message from the New Testament, despite this message from Jesus, uh, that the church has so often struggled to be on the right side of racial issues? Because often the white church has chosen power over the gospel. Hmm. Often the white church has chosen cultural privilege over the gospel. I want you to think about, about, about this. Let's say it's 1845 and you have a plantation, you've got cotton fields, and the church tells you, hey, you have to let go of your workforce. Now, the gospel would say, yes, I should let them go because human beings are not created to be slaves, and I should pay them a salary. Um, so people chose power. Also, um, there are people who aren't Christians who say they are Christians. And then thirdly, um, because of the European Enlightenment and because of revivalistic preaching, a lot of the gospel that's preached is not a full gospel. It's a reductionistic gospel. It's a gospel that says, believe in Jesus and you won't go to hell when you die. So if that's the case, then all I need to do is make my slaves believe the gospel and they'll experience heaven for all eternity. It'll be rough here on earth, but hey, I've done well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is more than forgiveness of sins. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the totality of God becoming king and defeating the dark powers, which include forgiveness, but also creates a new family that is a part of a new creation and owning other human beings is not included in that. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of it is dark demonic powers have blinded. People have chosen power over the gospel. Um, even in today's world, when people say, well, hey, we had a black president, so we're over racism. Um, that is such an ignorant thing to say. That is such an ignorant thing to say. And it's a very offensive thing to say. Um, the I'm thankful that President Obama became president. You know, I didn't agree with all of his policies. But I mean, it's a great story, right? But it's more than simply that. Even those types of attitudes that persist. At the end of the day, for every follower of Jesus, our hearts should be as such because of the gospel that we love our brothers and sisters in such a way that if they're treated unjustly, I'm treated unjustly. And I don't think we've gotten to that point and that's why I wrote How to Heal Our Racial Divide. I'm 
I'm more concerned about the prejudice and racism that is without the KKK sign or the white hats. I'm concerned about the racism that says you're good enough to be my brother in Christ, but not my brother in law. You're good enough um, to sit with me in the pews, but however, I'm not going to advocate you, advocate for you with unjust laws. So I'm calling for a deeper, more holistic, more beautiful discipleship. Yeah. You you write in the book that uh American individualism has, especially within the, within the church and the way that we have kind of perceived Jesus as being, you know, your personal savior, um, has contributed to the continuance of, uh, systemic racism. Uh, can you, can you kind of elaborate on that and why you think that's the case? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is, this is, this is, this is where it's important to be patient with congregations because congregations learn from their pastors. Mm -hmm. And so typically people are taught this, you know, uh, receive Jesus as your savior, have a personal relationship with him. All of that's true. God wants a personal relationship with him to put us in a family. So it's not just about me and Jesus. It's about me, Jesus, and my brothers and sisters. And now it turns into the we is more important than the me. And so when you read the New Testament, when you read the Bible, but specifically when you read the New Testament, you see things like this, like the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. You know, there's a lot of our and we, and even when the term you is used, particularly in Paul's letters, it's second personal, second person pronoun, and, and it's speaking of more than just one. And so when we think the gospel's just about me, then that means I can ignore the hurts and the pains and the cries of brothers and sisters who may being who may be treated differently than I am. And so I think that's where we got to get back to a communal um, understanding that individual salvation only exists so God the Father can have a family. Yeah, growing together in that family, understanding one another, coming together in a multitude of cultures is mm-hmm. is is so important. Uh, another thing that you you write about is um, you know there, there are a lot of people in the church, and I, I've I've heard this in the church uh, is is well I don't see color, and that's supposed to be a positive. It, it, it's well intentioned. It's meant to yeah. be a positive statement, uh, but it's it's not. <laughs> um, what what is the danger of having quote you know colorblind theology, and and what can we do differently? Yeah, yeah, you know, and for the listeners who have used that, I get this the sentiment behind it, uh, but I I want to take you from behind it to something better, right? So recently, well, actually, it's about a year ago, I was actually working on how to heal our racial divide. And I was writing in a coffee shop and an older uh, white man uh, said, uh, Derwin, or he didn't say Derwin, he, he, he said, what are you doing? Um, I said, hey, uh, I'm working on my book, how to heal our racial divide. And he says, is there a racial divide in America? I don't see color. And so at that point, um, I just respectfully said, well, why don't you see color? 
because God made me the color that I am and you the color that you are. And if you mute my color, you're muting part of the image of God in me that in our colors and cultures is the image of God. And we see God better when we see each other because we're all image bearers. And so we don't want to be colorblind. We want to be color blessed. And what's interesting as he and I began our conversation and by the end of it, he recognized that, wow, there is a racial problem because he said, I don't understand why black people don't come to our church. And I said, well, why don't you go to a black church? And he went, I've never thought of that. And I said, okay, that's an example of thinking that your color and culture is normative for everybody else. And so we end up having a really good conversation. But the point is this, God loves the beautiful colors. Look at the universe, look at the ocean, look at his creation. And so the only ones of his creation made in his image is human beings. And so when we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus, sealed with the power of the Holy Spirit and dwelt by Jesus himself, our colors and our cultures become a way of extending God's glory, teaching each other different aspects of who God is. And so at Transformation Church, we say we are a color-blessed people. And it's important to understand that for white Americans, European Americans, you guys have color, you guys have culture as well. And so it's important for us to be students and learning. That's how we learn. Echo chambers of sameness creates ignorance. The point that you were talking about, well, it just seems like white culture uh, is normative. That a lot of a lot of people, a lot of white people, they don't. They have the privilege of not thinking about their culture because they're just the majority wherever they go. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you have done with Transformation Church is that you have developed this multicultural, multi-ethnic church. An issue that I have found with a lot of churches that proclaim themselves to be multi-ethnic is that they're monocultural. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure that when you're building a church that you're not just getting you know, different shades of skin color in the crowd so it looks good in the group photo, but you're actually creating a multicultural church that is embracing and respecting people from all cultures. Yeah, I think the first thing is definition. Uh, Josh, what you just described is a lot of times you can have people with different shades, but they can be the same socioeconomic status. They can vote the same. They're kind of the same people, but with different shades of skin. And what we've tried to do imperfectly and what we'll continue to do is to say at God's table, all are welcomed in the family of the redeemed. And you can bring your color, you can bring your 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 culture. Now, I th- think it's important, right? So in Paul's day, Koine Greek was the language that everybody spoke. So whether if you were um, Aramaic or whether if you were a Hellenist, Koine Greek was the language everyone spoke. So at our church, English is the primary language because we're here in America. But that doesn't mean that people can't bring their uniqueness to the context. And a part of that is specifically expressed in leadership. But the main thing, though, and I I want everybody to grab a hold of this. 
our church is not a multi-ethnic church. It's a multi-ethnic church because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, nearly 700 people came to faith last year. Because of the gospel, we've made nearly 700,000 meals since the pandemic started. Because of the gospel, we want to inhabit righteousness and justice in our culture. And so because of the gospel, we want everybody to come to the table and bring their colors and cultures with them for integration into the whole. And whenever that happens, there's always sacrifice. Mm -hmm. We have to put down our preferences and pick up our crosses. And so one of the, one of the ways we try to to do that is in our mid-size and small groups, we want to make sure that there's always diversity within those groups so that those types of conversations and dialogue can take place. Is it difficult and challenging? Well, of course it is. There are dark powers that want people divided, and that's why we have to uh, dive deeper into the gospel, dive deeper into discipleship. It takes greater discipleship to live out racial reconciliation than not. And I think that's why the early church had such explosive growth, uh, uh, not only spiritually, but numerically, because it was such a radical thing in the ancient world to see enemies becoming family and foes becoming friends. Yeah, because whether you are historically of the ancestry of the oppressor or the ancestry of the oppressed, you know, when you come together, it is a constant, uh, I don't know if battle is the right word. It might be. It is a, is a constant effort to put aside your cultural foundations. That if you grew up, and it might just be not even necessarily antagonistic, but just ignorance. Uh, you know, I wasn't around people who spoke this language or were of this culture. And so I don't feel comfortable. And I think a lot of people in, in church, when they want to go to church, they want to feel comfortable and building something that is such a diverse community. It innately means dealing with discomfort. Uh, now you might get over that by the time that you actually spend time together, break bread together. Um, how do you begin that? Cause I, I feel like once you, once you get into it, and you have people who are committed, who are who are you know going to buy in to the vision. Uh, you can get started, but getting people to take that first step out of their comfort zones, uh, whether that's white people uh, in in predominantly white churches, whether that's black people in predominantly black churches. I was a white pastor at a primarily Asian church for several years, and the you know, the difficulty that we had just trying to bring together various ethnicities and socioeconomic groups. I mean, this is a, it's a difficult thing to get started. Mm -hmm. What are some good first steps that churches can take if they really want to be committed to building a multicultural church? Yeah. You know, the, the first thing is this gospel has to be in your soul. Uh, you know, when Paul says, um, in Galatians 3, 20, 20, 27, all who have faith in Christ are baptized into Christ. Therefore, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. We're all children 
of Abraham. It doesn't mean ethnic distinctions, class distinction, or male-female distinctions are blurred. It just means they're now redeemed and you appreciate the distinctions and the differences and be unified in them. Number one, it has to start there. Number two, your leadership has to reflect that in the church. Like there has to be legitimate leadership because representation matters. What you want the congregation to be, it has to be in the leadership. Number three, cross-cultural competency. What does that mean? At the simplest term, it just means this. I want to listen to learn your story. I want you to know that I love you so much. I want to hear your story. I want to hear the symbols that matter to you. I want to hear your fears. I want to understand you as a brother or sister in Christ. And, you know, Paul, in essence, does this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 20, uh, 19 through 23, where he says to the Jew, I become a Jew, to the Greek, I become a Greek. It simply means that Paul is saying, in order to reach people, I need to understand them and be willing to understand them, willing to become like them. And I think that's what love does. It's very incarnational to want to understand another person's story. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have to learn how to resolve conflict through the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification says that all who trust Jesus are incorporated into his righteousness. So therefore, when I look at my brothers and sisters, I see the righteousness of Jesus. If we just did that, that would change the way we relate to each other. Hmm. And so it's a process. And then lastly, by way of illustration and analogy, can you imagine going to a personal trainer and he says, hey, we're going to do CrossFit, but you're going to be very comfortable the whole time. <laughs> so a part of being in the family of God is there are moments of uncomfortability. I call that cruciformity. God is crucifying things in us that are not helpful for us. Mm. Yeah. In, in the past couple of years, um, we've seen, I think, especially since the murder of George Floyd, we've seen a lot of white people who were probably on the sidelines and this was sort of, it was, it was, a, it was a catalyst for them to step yeah. out and to speak out and to, to really push for racial reconciliation. Uh, but a lot of times it, it was in, in some untrained, naive ways, like yes. a lot of passion, a lot of zeal, but it, it a whole bunch of naive white people just showing up and saying, Hey, we're here and we're, we're ready to help um traditionally has not always been the best thing uh what are some ways that white people can push for reconciliation uh that doesn't drown out the voices of those who have been in the trenches working on this for decades uh what are some voices that we should be listening to what are some things that we should be doing to make yeah. sure that we go about this work in an appropriate manner yeah so the so the first thing is, thank you. You know, um, if you notice in Acts, in, uh, I'm sorry, if you, if you notice in Galatians uh, chapter two, when Paul confronts Peter in Antioch, mm -hmm. it was another Jew who confronted a Jew because Peter was being racist towards the Gentiles. And so we need our white brothers and sisters to stand in the gap and to 
advocate. That's number one. So thank you because it's a gospel issue. Number two, if racial reconciliation in the gospel is a hobby instead of a habit, you're going to say things you shouldn't say. You're going to say wrong things. And so uh, that leads to number three, uh, read my book, like dive into it. It is, it is 25 years of experience, a master's, a doctorate, church planning, everything I have, I have poured it into the pages of this book to give you a complete biblical theology of it, but also practices. At the end of every chapter, I have a prayer, I have questions, things to think about, and then I have what's called gospel practices to do. And so I've given you a how-to manual to do that. Um, you know, and so, yeah, that's what I'll say is, is, is please step in the gap because this is a gospel issue. Ethnic justice in the gospel is a gospel issue. Mm -hmm. So stand in the gap, get equipped, learn and participate. Mm -hmm. So just to sort of wrap things up, and I know this is, this is difficult because everything you put in the book, you put in there for a reason. Uh, but if there's just like one thing that you're just hoping that like this one thing needs to stand out, yeah. uh, that everyone who reads this definitely needs to come away understanding this point. Uh, what would what would that be for you? Here it is. Um, God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him a big, beautiful, multi-ethnic family. Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, fulfilled that promise. God is not a liar. Are we going to participate with him or not? Yep. There it is. Well, uh, Derwin, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Again, the book is uh, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's a wonderful overview, uh, very biblically grounded and based. If you've read some other books on racial reconciliation and you thought this needs more scripture, uh, this needs to be a little more biblically grounded for me to really feel like this is a Christian take uh, on the matter. This is the book that you have been looking for. Uh, so Derwin, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your ministry and everything that you've done uh, over the past several decades to, to be a voice uh, to help others grow together in the Lord. Wow. Well, thank, thank you, Josh. You, you, uh, Something you just said was pretty powerful. You said for the past decades. Wow. Well, I pray that all that decades of work God would use and bless this book powerfully. And uh, I thank your audience for listening. And I'm excited to see what God does.